Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you're our guest of honor in this place. Your children have gathered. Your family has come together. And we have come together to learn from your Spirit. We believe that what you have preserved for us in the pages between these two leather bindings, it forms your inerrant word that there are principles even in ancient history. You have saved them, preserved them, recorded them for a purpose. As Paul even noted, all things written before were written for our admonition. So, Lord, we seek to learn your mind, your activity, in ways that we could please you, in things that we maybe want to stay away from because they don't please you. So in this minor prophet book, the book of Micah, help us, Lord, to plumb its depth and to apply its truths. In Jesus' name, amen. You've, you've all heard the little statement that great things come in small packages. A few years ago, I had an unusual opportunity to visit the Ukraine, the city of Kiev. And I had a free afternoon, so I went to some of the museums. And I went to one of the most unusual museums I have ever been to. It was the artwork of a man by the name of Mikola Sayadristi. And Mikola Sayadristi was an artist who was able to make works of art, engravings, drawings, and little constructions at a micro level. He used a microscope to do it with his two hands in a microscope. And and so to view... In this museum, they would take you up to these little optical booths where you'd have to put your eyes and and look through the optics to even see something at a micro-miniature level. Imagine him making boots for a flea. That small. Imagine him making a book 12 pages long at the micro level with words on every page, and the total measurement was 0.6 millimeters. He took a human hair, and he managed somehow to hone it out so it was hollow lengthwise, and then place within the hollowed-out hair, hollowed, honed, and polished, a little rose on a stem with leaves and thorns that he had made, and he dropped it inside the hair he had honed out. Imagine building an archer in a chariot pulled by a horse, all of it contained in the eye of a sewing needle. And the arrow that he was pulling, this archer, was 400 times smaller than a human hair. Amazing. Truly amazing. I walked through this museum, you know, rubbed my eyes going, wow, how, what patience, what possessed him to do that? (laughs) 
But it was beautiful nonetheless. And I walked out, and that's what I thought of. Wow, great things come in small packages. Indeed, very small. It is that way, oftentimes, in spiritual matters. Yeah, you can have uh, an unknown man from an unknown, very small town, like Morasheth. The guy by the name of Micah, a minor prophet, but he has a major impact and a major message. We've given this whole series that title, Minor Prophets in the Major League. And Micah was like that. He was from a very small town. It was so small that it was often coupled together with another town that was just a little bit bigger than it. And it wasn't even an Israeli town. It was a Philistine city, the city of Gath, one of the five cities of the Philistines. The town Morasheth was so small that it was often known by the title Morasheth Gath. So people would go, oh, I know where that is. Morasheth, never heard of it. Gath, yeah, that's the enemy's territory. Great things, however, come in small packages. Micah is a fellow you may never have thought of much when you think of reading through the Bible. I wonder how many even know what the theme of the message of Micah is. He's not necessarily a popular book. However, he was quoted by both the prophet Jeremiah, who lived about a hundred years later, and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating book, fascinating because of the results of this man's ministry. Now, you know, some prophets didn't really have great results. I would hate to have been Jeremiah, obeying the will of God, speaking the words of God to a nation that by and large rejected him, sent him away, put him in prison. Even Hosea and the prophet Amos were largely disregarded. No real great results. Now Jonah, which we read the last few weeks, he definitely had results, but he didn't want the results, did he? He was mad that God made him a successful prophet. He wanted the Ninevites to be crispy critters, and God saved the town. But now Micah, he wanted results, and he got results. It seems that Micah, by the way, a contemporary with the major prophet Isaiah, they had a similar ministry. Micah, from this little town in Judah, went to speak to the big city of Jerusalem, A, and the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria, both of them, and had incredible results. He had, it seems, by his preaching, a revival that was credited to his account. Now, I know this is all introductory, but I think it's important to even understand and digest just how great an impact Micah made in his generation. But as I mentioned, a hundred years later, after Micah had come and gone, Jeremiah comes on the scene. And Jeremiah preaches to Jerusalem. Basically the same message, which is, you're going down. The Babylonians, they're on your heels. This city will fall. Now, with that in mind, 
Keep a marker here. You say, keep a marker here. We didn't even do verse 1 yet. Yeah, I know. Keep a marker here and go back to Jeremiah chapter 26. Are you there? In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, that would be the temple in Jerusalem. Speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not diminish a word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn away from his evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I propose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Shiloh had been destroyed by the Assyrians sometime before this. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now watch this. Now it happened when Jeremiah made an end of speaking all that the Lord commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests, now these are the religious leaders, and the prophets, these would be the false prophets. And all the people seized him, saying, You will surely die. See, that's why I say I'd hate to be Jeremiah. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate, without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Now skip down to verse 16. So the princes, all the people, said to the priests and all the prophets, This man does not deserve to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah the king of Judah and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing great evil against ourselves. Here's what he's saying. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Don't kill this guy. Because a hundred years ago there was another prophet, Micah, who prophesied the same thing, and he caused, by his prophesying, a revival to happen. And that revival, and that revival, by the way, are the reforms of King Hezekiah, who turned and asked forgiveness from God. And because of that, God spared the city of Jerusalem. All of that I want to explain to you tonight, because it's fascinating. So, a revival that withheld the judgment of God on Jerusalem and Judah 
is credited to the prophesying, the preaching ministry of Micah, of Moresheth, and I would say also as well, the prophet Isaiah. Now, Moresheth, 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Good luck in trying to find the ruins of it today. You'll have better luck finding its larger Philistine city, the city of Gath. But nonetheless, he came from there. He came from a rural community to preach in the big city of Samaria, up north, Jerusalem, down south. So he's sort of like Amos, isn't he? Remember famous Amos? Amos was not so famous. He was from Tekoa. And God sent this sheep breeder and sycamore fruit picker to the big city up north in Samaria. Same with this prophet, Micah. Obscure, small town, big city ministry. And by the way, do you remember back in the prophecy of Amos that Amos had a style that he drew a bullseye? Remember that? He started speaking against all of the towns that were enemies of the Jews. And I imagine all the people in Judea thought, Yeah, good preacher. I like this guy. He's getting mad at all of our enemies. But then he kept going and he started prophesying about nations and cities that were closer to Judah. And then finally the northern kingdom and then finally Jerusalem. So it's like he drew a bullseye around God's people and then put them right in the middle and said, God has you in his judgment sights. Well, this prophet is similar in that he begins with Samaria, the very pagan, the very carnal kingdom of the north, but will also end with Judea. So God's people are in focus here in this prophecy. So let's begin now the book of Micah. Hear the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham. You may, may remember he was the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Ahaz, he was a real bad dude. And Hezekiah, he was a real good dude because he brought reforms with the preaching of this prophet. All of them were kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, if you have a pen or a pencil, write in the margin of your Bible, 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20, because that will give you the historical background on this book. And you can read it on your own. But real briefly, the Assyrians were taking over the world. And they had swept from the east and the north, and they had come onto the mountains of Samaria, and the northern kingdom was jeopardized. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 18 tells us that King Shalmaneser came in and attacked the northern kingdom, and it fell, by the way, in 722 B.C. Eight years later, another Assyrian king, now get this, comes from Samaria through the towns of Judah and comes down south to the city of Jerusalem and threatens Jerusalem. And when he comes to Jerusalem, this king sends out his chief of staff. He's called the Rabshakeh. 
It's just a weird Assyrian name for chief of staff. And the Rabshakeh brings a letter from King Sennacherib. And the letter is given to King Hezekiah. Before the letter is given, this general of the Assyrian army looks up at the walls of Jerusalem and says, Give your king this message. In whom do you trust that you think you can withstand our invasion? And if you are so stupid as if to think you can trust in your God, then you are deceived. Because go and check all of the other nations that we've already conquered. They trusted in their gods, and they're dead. So you might trust in Yahweh, the King of Israel, the God of Israel, but you would be so foolish to do that. Well, this rattled the people in Jerusalem. This was tough talk, especially this letter that said, Surrender now or you're dead meat, basically. Don't trust Hezekiah. Don't trust God. All the promises won't come to pass. Hezekiah was smart. He panicked before God. It's one thing to panic. It's another thing to pour out your heart before the Lord. That was smart. He poured out his heart before the Lord and unveiled the letter fell to his knees and asked God for help. Hezekiah did that. Isaiah the prophet heard about that and said, Go give a message to King Hezekiah that because he humbled himself and cried out before the Lord and brought this letter before God, God's going to spare the city. And boy, did he spare the city. Between the revival that was brought on by Micah and the promise that was given by Isaiah and the repentance that happened by King Hezekiah. God spared the city because the next morning they looked out into the valley, and the night before an angel of the Lord had killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. They all lay dead. That's what I call protection. That's only one angel, folks. Now do you understand how powerful a statement it was when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Don't you know I could pray to my Father and get 12 legions of angels? Imagine what 12 legions could do when one can put out 185,000. So all of that is the historical background of this book. Verse 2. See, we're making progress. We're already in verse 2. Hear all you peoples. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord, from His holy temple. Okay. That little word here is so important, it's mentioned three times in this book. Now I want you to follow me here. There's three sections of this book. There's three sermons that this prophet preaches. And you can tell the beginning of each sermon because he uses the same word, hear. If you have an old King James, hear ye. So either it begins with hear, or as it does in chapter 3, hear now. And again in chapter 6, hear now. So chapters 1 and 2 is the first sermon. Chapters 3 through 5 is the second sermon. And chapter 6 and 7 is the third sermon. Okay, so there's three messages he gives. You can tell the beginning because he says, Here or here now. Okay, so you got three sections of the book. In each of the three sections of the book, there are three sections of the message. 
Now, I want you to follow me again. The first part of the message is a rebuke for their sin. The second part is a proclamation of God's judgment because of their sin. The third part is the promise of God's help via the Messiah who will eventually come. So you have in each sermon the immediate, the intermediate, and the ultimate. You have, um, you have the immediate confrontation. He charges them with their sin. You have the intermediate consequence. This is what's going to happen because of your sin. But you have the ultimate cure that comes via the Messiah. So you got that? That's in all three of the sermons. Now, why am I spending this much time? Because there is a pattern in those sermons that bring up three of the most important aspects of the nature and character of God. Number one, God is sovereign. Nothing escapes His control. Ultimately, He is in charge of history and nations and kings and judgment. Number one, His sovereignty. Number two, His holiness is seen in these messages. Because God is holy, God must deal with sin, and God will judge this unrepentant nation. God's holiness. Now now listen. Whether sin is found among God's own people or in foreign soil, God must deal with sin. So God's sovereignty, God's holiness, and third, ultimately, God's love. One of the aspects you find, uh, along with the judgment of God, is that God loves mercy, doesn't he? With the Ninevites and Jonah. Remember that whole episode? God loves mercy. That's what ticked Jonah off. I knew that you're a merciful, loving God. That's what bothered him. So you see, in all of the messages, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, and the love of God, who in His love desires to be merciful and will ultimately provide a cure through the Messiah. Three of the most important aspects of the nature and character of God. So now we're done with verse 2. Verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. He will come down. And tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. Do some of you remember that song we've sung around here? In your presence, Lord, the mountains melt like wax. It's such a picturesque view of God descending from heaven and walking on the volcanoes and causing earthquakes, the seismic activity. Very picturesque. The mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. All of this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? What is he saying? He's saying, okay... I'm judging two different groups of my people. One happens to be up north geographically. That's the northern ten tribes of Israel. The second are the two southern tribes of Judah. I'm judging them both because they've sinned. What is their sin? 
their capital city of Samaria, up north, and their capital city of Jerusalem, down south. In other words, the reason the country is guilty is because those in positions of leadership and influence have brought that on them. Those at the influence base of Samaria and Jerusalem have led in a bad example, and the reason Samaria and Jerusalem is guilty and will fall is because of their two capital cities. So I'll sum it up by saying this. Companions in sin will become companions in judgment. You guys have followed the same track, and I've judged the north, and I'm going to judge the south. And you say, now, wait a minute. I thought this prophet Micah brought a revival down south, and God forestalled judgment. That's the key word, forestalled. Because 136 years after 722 B.C. was the year 536 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar and his armies destroyed Jerusalem and took them captive. Yes, a revival occurred. Yes, Hezekiah the king brought tremendous reforms. But the people went back to their sins, and the city was eventually destroyed. But that's an important principle, isn't it? That God holds these bases of influence culpable and responsible. Every nation has centers of influence. That is, what happens in that city happens first, and then other people in other parts of the country sort of follow suit. New York is one of those in our country. Los Angeles is another one of those in our country. Trends start there, like it or not. Eventually, it ends up in other places. So there is a, there is a special responsibility for people or cities that have influence with other people. No wonder in the New Testament we're told, Be not many masters or many teachers, you will receive the stricter judgment. For individuals and for cities as well. Interesting article. I have saved it from the Orange County Register in Southern California. Several years ago there was an earthquake in Southern California and the epicenter of that earthquake struck at the very heart, interestingly enough, of the pornography industry in America. In fact, when that earthquake was done, they discovered that 70 companies that crank out 95% of the 1,400 videos, adult videos, pornographic videos per year in our country, were affected. You know, I read the article, I, I, I just, I had to smile. I had to say, hmm, coincidence? I don't know. Very interesting, though. Talk about a center of influence. Bang! And God says, all this for the transgression of Jacob. And what is it? It's Samaria, the capital, and Jerusalem, the capital. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley and I will uncover her foundations. Now, you know, the city of Samaria wasn't always a city, was it? You may remember your biblical history that it once was a vineyard. And a king in Israel by the name of King Omri decided to build on the hill of Samaria a city. He was the first builder of that town. 
And so the vineyards that were once there were taken away and cities took the place of the vineyards and the orchards. The Assyrians came in. You know the date, 722 B.C. The capital city was destroyed. The buildings torn down. And it turned back eventually to how it started. Now, a few years ago, on one of my trips to Israel, our group was in the northern parts, and the buses took them down south. And I told my tour guide, hey, listen, I'm going to meet you down in Jerusalem. I know where you're going today. I'll meet you in Jericho or Jerusalem. I'm going to rent a car. And I remember he looked at me because he knew what I was thinking. He goes, don't you go to Samaria. I said, see in Jerusalem. So I got in a car, got out the map, and hightailed directly to Samaria. And here's why. I always wanted to see it. And tour buses and tour guides won't take you there because of of the volatile nature of it. But I was smart. I picked up a a hitchhiking Israeli soldier. They're everywhere, but they got their their guns. So I figured I'm going to pick up at least one soldier, so I got firepower. It's always good to have a soldier next to you if you get in any kind of an infraction. So I got to drive right into Samaria and see it. And it's interesting. Samaria, the ancient site, Sabaste, it is eventually called in the New Testament, is a vineyard and orchards. And all the stones that were once on top of the hill are now down in the valley with weeds growing up around them. So it's just always fun to see prophecy fulfilled whenever you can. And I got the chance that afternoon. All her carved images, verse 7, shall be beaten to pieces. And all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. You know what that is referring to? Pagan worship, cultic pagan worship, was sexual worship. There were paid prostitutes on the hills where shrines were erected within the groves of trees. And these sacred prostitutes, by the way, same in the New Testament book of Corinth, you know, paganism is the same every generation, whether it's modern paganism today in some of these parts of the world or ancient paganism. It's always the same. It's very appealing to the emotion, to the baser instincts of man, to the sensual nature of man. So they would go out, pay the harlot, and worship a god or a goddess. And then oftentimes what happened is the money that these prostitutes had went to pay for little shrine, little idols in the house, little house that was kept that honored the temple of that god or goddess. Archaeology shows lots of these little statues and shrines that have been kept in these temples and they've been uncovered even of late. Now look at verse 8. The prophet gets very personal here. You're going to see his emotion coming through the text. This is how it affected him personally. Therefore, I will wail and howl. This is Micah now speaking. He's not speaking for the Lord. He's speaking for himself. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like ostriches. Have you ever heard an ostrich howl? 
Now, I haven't. Some of you may have, but I decided, I thought, a howling ostrich? That just sounds like weird. But I went online and I discovered they have a very doleful, mournful howl. And it's very loud and very obvious. So he's painting a picture of how it affected him personally. Much like Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, when he viewed from the southwestern portal, he saw the walls of Jerusalem crumbling down like he predicted. He wailed and he mourned and he said, there's no strength within me. He was personally touched. He didn't look at it and go, ha, 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 just like I said. Now, Jonah would have loved to watch the destruction of Nineveh. He was bummed because it didn't get destroyed. Jeremiah and Micah were bummed out because they knew it would be destroyed. I will make a wailing like jackals. I'm often convicted that when I look at unbelievers, I'm not touched with the same deep mourning. I mean, when was the last time you sat next to somebody on an airplane and thought, if that person doesn't receive Christ, he or she will face an eternity of misery? And then what does that do to you emotionally? R.W. Dale was a preacher from Birmingham, England, in the days of Dwight L. Moody, and he said something really interesting. He said, in my view, no one I know is equipped or fit to preach on the subject of hell except Dwight Lyman Moody. Because whenever he preaches on hell, there are tears in his voice. There's a weeping over that future. This prophet, similar to Moody and Jeremiah, took it personally. Verse 9, here's why. Here's why. Now we understand his emotion. For her wounds are incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. What has come? Judgment has come. Here is a prophet predicting judgment that would come to Jerusalem. Yes, Hezekiah reformed. There was a revival. But again, there was only a reprieve of 136 years. Her wounds are incurable, says the prophet. There is a line. I don't know where that line is. There's a time. I don't know when that time is. Only God knows. When a person crosses the point of no return, becomes insensate, incapable of feeling, incapable of of dealing deeply with sin. The Bible calls it reprobate. Where God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Again, I'm, I'm not ever one to say they've crossed that line. I don't know it. I'm called to preach the gospel till the last breath that I have. But there is a little poem that summarizes that. There is a time we know not when, a line we know not where, that marks the destiny of man betwixt sorrow and despair. There is a line, though by man unseen, once it has been crossed, even God in all his love hath sworn that all is lost. And the prophet 
is moaning and howling because the wound of Jerusalem is incurable, and it, the judgment, has come even to her gates. So look what he says to the people. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Afra. Roll yourself in the dust. Now allow me to make sense of the next few verses, because otherwise we'll read them and just go, that's kind of weird. There are ten cities that are mentioned in the next few verses. And the ten cities follow a geographical pattern. They move from north to south. They move from the outskirts of the hill country of Judea toward Jerusalem itself. Why? Because that is the exact route that Sennacherib, the Assyrians, will take in coming against Jerusalem to pronounce doom. Now eventually the Babylonians will also come down and destroy the city. So he starts from the fray and goes to the very center, the epicenter, Jerusalem itself. And these ten cities, the names in Hebrew are a play on words. Okay, the first one, it says, don't even say anything about this in Gath. Why? Because Gath is a city of the Philistines. Philistines are enemies. Don't tell the Philistines that Jerusalem is going to be doomed. They're going to have a party. And they'll probably want to join the Assyrians because they hate Jerusalem and they'd love to destroy it. So don't even mention it in Gath. Notice the next one. Weep not at all. In Beth Afra, roll yourself in the dust. Beth Afra means house of dust. Hey, house of dust, roll in the dust. Hey, house of dirt, eat dirt. Rolling in the dust was an extreme sign of mourning for the dead. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitants of Safir. Safir is a word that sounds similar to the Hebrew word beautiful. They're not going to be very beautiful when this judgment gets done with them. The inhabitant of Za'anan does not go out. Similar to the word Yatsah, which means to go out. And what God is saying, no, you won't go out. You will be pent up inside when the Assyrians come. The inhabitants of Za'anan does not go out. Bet Ezel mourns. Its place is to stand, is taken away from you. Now that's a, that's a word. Uh, Bet Ezel is a word that means the house next to you or your, the nearby place. Uh, you, you would say your neighbor's house. And it was, it was customary for a neighbor to take care of another neighbor. If, if you need something, the neighbor will give you whatever you need. Help out. Now, not when the Assyrians come. Neighbors won't be able to help. There'll be no help at all nearby. There'll be no house nearby that will give you help from this judgment. That's the play on words. For the inhabitant of Marot, which means bitter, pined, or became bitter of heart for good. But disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. One of the most important ancient cities in Israel and in the entire Middle East 
was this little town called Lachish, 25 miles outside of Jerusalem. Why was it important? It was a military outpost. It was a place where chariot horses were kept and raised and then disseminated throughout the land. It was so important that the Assyrians kept a record of it in a record called the Annals of Sennacherib in the palace of Nineveh. There was discovered a relief. You know, relief is uh, the motif that's put on a wall of a palace that depicts a battle that is fought and won. They don't want to put the battles they lost, so they always carve out the battles they won. Well, that motif from the palace of Nineveh, which depicts the fall of Lachish by the Assyrians, was discovered. And if you get the hankering, you could fly over to London and go in the British Museum and see the very relief predicted in that verse. Still there today. I saw it. It's cool. So Lachish, the city would be destroyed. Now, why is that? Why is it mentioned? Notice what it says. She, verse 13, was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. Did you know that the very first little town that introduced the same idolatry that was prevalent in the north under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, remember he put two golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan? That kind of worship was first introduced in Lachish. That was the beginning of idolatry to the southern kingdom, and it spread like wildfire from that city. Therefore, you shall give presents to Morasheth Gath. There it is, the town of the prophet Micah, connected to the Philistine city of Gath, because it's the larger town. The houses of Akzib, means deceitful or lie, shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Marashah, Marashah means the one who inherits or possesses or owns. But I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Marashah. In other words, you will be owned, you will be possessed, you will become the inheritance of a foreign power. The glory of Israel shall come to Adulam. Remember when David fled from King Saul? He fled into a cave, and the cave was the cave of Adulam, out in the wilderness. So that flight of King David for his life from the persecution of King Saul is, is what is used here. The prophet is saying, you've got to do it again. You're going to have to try to run and flee for protection because they're coming to get you. Make yourself bald. I'm sure that's none of your life verses. And cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. The cutting of one's head to the point of baldness was another way people mourned for the dead. If your parent died, sackcloth, ashes, shaving of the hair was done in mourning. So... That's what this is about. Your children, O Jerusalem, will be taken so suddenly, you're going to want to mourn them in a very dramatic manner. Okay, now, this didn't happen with the Assyrians. As I said, 
there was Sennacherib and his gang threatened Jerusalem. Hezekiah repented, brought the letter before God. Uh, They had listened to the prophet Micah. They listened to Isaiah. They were spared. But 136 years later, in 586 B.C., because of the incurable wound, it says at the end of verse 1, for they shall go from you into captivity. So it follows with the first word of chapter 2. In Hebrew, it says woe, but the Hebrew word, do you remember? Oi! That's Hebrew. Oi! Oi is right, yeah. God is saying, Oi, my people! The prophet is saying, Woe, oi, why? Well, chapter 1 is because of the sins that they sinned against God. Chapter 2 is the sins they committed against people. And by the way, one always follows the other. If you have a bad relationship with people, or God, you're going to have a bad relationship with people. If you try to get your relationships right on the horizontal level first before attacking the vertical axis with God, your life is going to be out of balance. Picture your life as two axes, a vertical and a horizontal, and they're fixed. So if your relationships are out of whack with God vertically, look what happens on the horizontal level with people. They're going to be out of whack. This is why I have problems with a counselor who says, you have deep psychological problems, and you fell on your head when you were a little kid, and you have all of these psychoses and neuroses, and we got to fix them. (laughs) Deal first with the relationship vertically with your God. If you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. Before you pass that off as too simplistic, you try it. And you watch how God just sort of puts things in order when in humility you come poor in spirit and mourn and broken and meek. And you get things right with Him and then all of the things like being a peacemaker, etc., they fall into place. So one always follows the other. If there's problems that you have with God, you will have problems in the human level. One always follows. They're connected. So woe to you who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it. Can you imagine somebody going to bed at night thinking, what mischief can I work tomorrow? I'm going to plan it right now. I'm going to write it down lest I forget it. I can really do this dude in. Oh, this is a good one. Well, that's the unrighteous. Contrast that with the righteous. Psalm 4, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your own heart upon your bed and place your trust in the Lord. When on your bed you do righteous and you pray and you commit things to God and you go to sleep like that, very, very different results. Because it is in their power, it is in the power of their hand, they covet fields and take them by violence. Again, this is all on the human level. Chapter 1, sins against God. Chapter 2, against each other. They covet fields and take them by violence and houses and seize them. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. Now, this is what I think he is referring to in verse 2. 
one of the kings of Israel had a problem with coveting. He's a really bad guy. Remember his name? Ahab. Married to Jezebel. Talk about a creepy couple. It was a match made in hell. And they were, the, they were in charge of the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, King Ahab saw this vineyard owned by a guy named Naboth up in the area of Samaria and came home one day pouting like a little kid. I really wish I had that vineyard. He didn't do anything about it. He just moaned and complained that he didn't have it. He was coveting it. And his wife, who had a little more chutzpah than he had, said, Look, you're the king of Israel. You can have anything you want. Just go take it. He wouldn't do it, so she had Naboth killed, and she took the vineyard and said, Here, it's yours. All by violence due to covetousness. How often do we think of coveting as a sin? It's the Tenth Commandment. And it's interesting. It's the only commandment that doesn't deal with an outward action. It deals with an inward attitude. It was the one commandment. Paul said, When I read the law... I read, Thou shalt not covet it. It killed me. It slayed me. You know, because I wasn't doing this and I wasn't doing that and I didn't smoke and I didn't chew and I didn't go with girls to do and all that stuff. But then, then I read something that dealt with my attitude, my desires. I coveted something in my heart. And I realized I'd broken the law. Well, they covet and they take by violence. Now God says in verse 3, Behold, I... Against this family I am devising disaster. Now stop there and compare that with verse 1. Woe to those who devise iniquity. Verse 3. Behold, I am devising disaster. In other words, you're not the only one who makes plans. So do I. And I am God, and you're planning something, and I'm planning something to overturn the iniquity that I see in this family, my people. Verse 4. In that day one will take up a proverb against you, a lament with bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people. How he has removed from me to a turncoat, he has divided our fields. Therefore you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. So utter, so total was the removal of the people from the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and the destruction of Samaria. That years later, when they came back to occupy, they couldn't tell the tribal boundaries, so nobody knew what tribe they were from. They lost a lot of the tribal identity in Babylon, except a few of them, Judah and Benjamin. And all of them were taken up, all of the 12 tribes, mixed together and brought back, but they had a hard time distinguishing tribal boundaries. Now, I just want to share this with you because it's a cool book. I don't even remember the name of it, but it's, it's in a box somewhere. You say, really cool book. I got it in Jerusalem. It's written by a physicist, Jewish physicist from the University of Chicago. In studying the human genome, the DNA, the chromosomes of Jewish people, they've discovered that each genome has halotypes, genetic markers. And these genetic markers, these closely organized halotypes, are tags so that they have discovered you can tell if a person is Jewish by a genetic test. Anybody. You could take a test 
They'll give you the results and tell you how much Jewish blood is in you from your ancestry. They'll even tell you where you migrated. If you're Ashkenazi, if you're Near Eastern, Middle Eastern, European, they can tell by these halotype markers every descendant who is Jewish. They can also tell, though they can't give you the tribes, they could tell you the genetic coding if you're from the priestly tribe, Kohenim. A fascinating book. It was a quick read on the way out of Jerusalem over somewhere else back home. But though they couldn't tell their tribal allotments coming back, though only the DNA can tell you if you're Jewish but not what tribe you're from unless you're of the priestly tribe of Levi, the truth is God knows every Jewish person and what tribe they're from in their history. All of that to say there are no ten lost tribes. And in the restoration, even before the thousand-year reign of the millennium, when God saves and restores 144,000 of them, the tribes are mentioned. Well, how will they know? They don't have to know. God knows. I mean, if we can get into studying the human genome and, describe, and, and, and figure out who's Jewish, God can figure out which tribe they're from. So God declares in advance the 12 tribes that will be restored of the 144,000. Anyway, fascinating study. We're out of time. Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you, for they shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? No. Are these His doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Of course. Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment. That is, they would steal even the meager belongings of the poor. From those who trust you as they pass by, like men return from war, the women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses, from the children you have taken away my glory forever. Arise and depart. For this is not your rest, even though God said in Deuteronomy 12, the land would be their resting place. Because it is defiled, it shall be destroyed, yes, with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of this people. Now that's interesting. These people would not tolerate Righteous, truthful, biblical preaching. The only preaching they would tolerate is the preaching of the false prophet who would basically say, Party on dudes in the name of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, have a kegger. I mean, that's basically what it's saying. I will prophesy to you of wine and drink. Thus saith the Lord, have a party. All right, I like this preacher. He says what I like to hear. It's all they would tolerate. Now, verses 12 through 13, we'll read them and we'll pray. We'll stop. We'll pick it up next week because that's that last component of the third of the three components that speaks of the future cure. Look how different this sounds. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like the flock in the midst of their pasture. 
They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate and go by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Now, unfortunately, we're out of time, but that is the most significant part of that last, of this first sermon. It's messianic. It speaks of Jesus Christ, and we'll show you why next week, so you'll want to come back. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for faithful men and women who throughout history you have used to proclaim truth. And as the prophet began tonight, a message for all people. That would include us. These principles were written for us. Thank you that we have taken this time and carved it aside from our week to meditate on the words of truth. Lord, I pray that our walk with you would be purified, if need be, modified, purified, so that our relationship with others would also be pure, without guile, upright, honest. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.